If you are uh, new here or haven't been around for a little bit, uh, we are in a study on the Ten Commandments, and we're actually coming to the end of that study. This morning we're on the Ninth Commandment. So if you have a Bible, open it. If you don't, you'll notice in your worship folder that there is, uh, the scriptures are printed there on your sermon guide and you can follow along. So the Ninth Commandment, you shall, now, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, most of the time, this commandment gets reduced to, don't lie. And certainly while lying is part of and falls underneath the ninth commandment, I I hope you see this morning, by the time we finish, that the ninth commandment is much, much bigger than that. That bearing false witness goes far beyond just lying. In fact, in the very commandment itself, you have court-type language, right? A witness. Witnesses are brought forth in court to accurately represent, right, what somebody has said or what somebody has done. And in an attempt to get accurate witness, right, the courts will ask a witness to what? Raise their right hand and swear to tell nothing but the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, right? That's the phrase. Now, of course, in our postmodern world, uh, this gets a little bit dicey because you can make words mean what you want them to make. So we don't always get the truth when words can have different meanings to fit what you want. But what I want you to see here is that is it bearing false witness, if we, if we can grab a quick definition of it, it's failure to accurately represent with your words the truth about yourself and about your neighbor or about someone else, that that's bearing false witness. It's the failure to accurately represent with your words the truth about yourself or about someone else. Now, what does that look like? We're gonna to get to it when we answer the question, how do you bear false witness? What are the various forms that that takes on? But before we get there, I wanna recognize, and, and we need to recognize that beneath every act of bearing false witness is a motive. There's a reason why you bear false witness. And so we're gonna start by answering that question. Why do you bear false witness against your neighbor? There's a great story in the Old Testament. It's in 1 Kings chapter 21. And it's about a man named Naboth. And Naboth owns a vineyard. And this vineyard is right next to Ahab's palace. And Ahab is the king of Israel. And King Ahab is in his palace and he looks next door to his neighbor Naboth and he sees this vineyard and it's a beautiful vineyard and he says, I want that vineyard. So he goes to Naboth and he says, Naboth, I want your vineyard. Give it to me for either a price that I'll pay you or for one of my vineyards that I will exchange for it. And Naboth's answer is to the king, No, 
because this vineyard of mine is the inheritance of my father's. So what does King Ahab do? He goes back to his palace, he goes up to his bedroom, he lays down, he sulks, and he loses his appetite. And his wife Jezebel walks into the room. And Jezebel says, what's the problem? Why are you so depressed? Why have you lost your appetite? And Ahab says, because Naboth won't give me his vineyard. He won't sell me his vineyard. And Jezebel says, have you forgotten who you are? You're the king. You do what you want. You get what you want. Cheer up. Don't worry about it. I'll get your vineyard. And so Jezebel goes out and she hires two false witnesses who bring a charge against Naboth, namely two charges, that he cursed God and that he cursed the king. So Naboth is dragged outside the city and stoned to death. And Ahab gets his vineyard. Now, why did King Ahab bear false witness? Because he wanted something so badly. And when he didn't get it, he fell into a depression. He lost his appetite. Anybody been there? When life hits, maybe something you've wanted and it's not coming, you lose your appetite. You get depressed. That's what King Ahab did. He wanted it so badly that when he couldn't get it, he was willing to do whatever it took to get it, even if his wife would bear false witness and falsely accuse this man Naboth so he'd be killed so he could get the vineyard. Why do you bear false witness? Every one of us has vineyards in our heart. Nice, lush, purple, beautiful grapes that we want. And when the vineyards start to take root in the heart, right, what happens is that we are willing to do whatever it takes to get that because the heart gets to a point where it says, if I don't have that vineyard, I will not be happy. And so I'll do whatever it takes and I will use what is very powerful and that is my words. James chapter three says the tongue is powerful. It can set a fire ablaze. And so I'll use my words to get what I want even if it means I will misrepresent myself or I'll misrepresent someone else. Spin the truth, exaggerate the truth, whatever it takes to get what I want because if I don't have that, I won't be happy. Interesting, in the story about Naboth's vineyard, you realize that commandments six, eight, nine, and 10 were broken. And there's another one that's broken. But let's start with it, right? 10, we're gonna get to it next week. Ahab coveted or strongly desired this beautiful vineyard. And after coveting it, he went to the next step of bearing false witness breaking the ninth commandment. Then he went to the next step of committing murder, sixth commandment, and then finally steals the vineyard, right? Eighth commandment. Broke all of those, and then what we have seen all along in these 10 commandments is you cannot break commandments five through 10 unless you first break commandment one. No other gods before me, God says. When, when you break commandments five through 10, something has become too important to you. Something has risen to God-like status to where you say, if I don't have that, I won't be happy. 
and I'm going to get it. And that's what happened in this story. And that's what happens. When we bear false witness, something has become, in, has become way too important in our life. What, what are some of the vineyards? We've talked about it in this series. What are the vineyards in your heart? Could be your reputation. Could be stuff. Could be money. Could be your career. Could be some form of pleasure. Anything can get hold of your heart and take control of your heart to where you say, I have to bear false witness to get that. Now, let's move on to the second question. How do you bear false witness against your neighbor? What does it practically look like? As I said earlier, it is not just lying. Yes, that's, that's certainly one of them. But it goes much, much deeper than that. And God's talking about something much deeper than that in the ninth commandment. So we go to a story in the New Testament, another great story in the book of Acts. It's Acts chapter five. And it's a story about Ananias and Sapphira. Let me just set the context. Early church, post-Pentecost, the spirit has come. Thousands have come to Christ. The church is growing. We read Acts chapter two, this amazing community of generosity and self-sacrificing love. And they love Jesus, and they're praying, they're worshiping. The Lord's adding to their number daily. This young church is just bursting with life. And then we get to this story in Acts chapter 5. And let me read the last verse of Acts 4 to set the context of what happens here. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But, right, it's setting up a contrast. A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. Now, what's happening here? On the surface, it seems like Ananias and Sapphira are getting punished, are being struck down for not bringing all of the proceeds from the land to the apostles' feet like Barnabas did, right? But that's not what's happening here. That's not the problem. You go down to verse 4. Peter says to them, While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. In other words, what Peter's saying is, this property was yours before you sold it. And after you sold it and got the money, the money was yours. And you had the right to, to give whatever portion you wanted to the church, to the apostles' feet, which was the church in that day. You want to tithe 10% of it? Tithe 10%. You want to give 50% of it? Give 50. You want to give all 100 like Barnabas did? By all means, do it. What was the lie? Down to verse 8. Peter says to Sapphira, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. You see what happened? They, they sold the land 
and they told the church and the apostles that they sold it for less than they actually sold it. So they could keep some for themselves, but look like they gave the entire sale to the church. It it would be like they sold the land for $30,000, but told the church, we sold it for 20,000 and here's all 20,000. You see, they were bearing false witness because they were misrepresenting themselves and putting forth a version of themselves that wasn't accurate. It was deceit. It was hypocrisy. It was putting themselves in this beautiful, generous light of we did exactly what Barnabas did. Here's the wholesale. While they kept some from themselves. See, it was, it was the issue of deceit, of misrepresenting themselves and putting forth a false version of themselves. It wasn't accurate. One of the ways, and that we learn from this story, one of the ways that we bear false witness is by withholding information that allows other people to perceive us in a way that is not accurate and is not reality. Let me say that again. One of the ways, and it's subtle, that we bear false witness is by withholding information that allows others to perceive us in a way that is not accurate, that is not reality. Let me give you an example of this. I played college football at Carnegie Mellon University, D3 school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And after I left graduate school and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, I met somebody that worked for FCA. And FCA is a wonderful ministry that takes the gospel to athletes primarily, to teams. And this person I met was on staff with FCA and she found out that I loved Jesus and I was a former college quarterback. So guess what happens? I get put on the speaking circuit, right? So I go around to high schools sharing my testimony with high school teams and athletes. And everywhere I would go, because I was a college athlete, I would get the questions. They'd say, so so did you start at Carnegie Mellon? I'd say, I I did. My senior year, I was behind a four-year starter. And so my senior year, I got my opportunity. Yes, I started. Well, how many many yards did you throw for your senior year? You know what? I, I, I don't remember, right? That really humble answer. Well, how many touchdowns did you throw for your senior year? You know, I I just can't remember. Humble answer, right? Here's the reality. Here's the truth. It's coming out. I'm about to be free in a couple of minutes here. I don't think I threw for a touchdown pass my senior year. In fact, I threw more touchdown passes my junior year in mop-up time, and I think it was like two. And I threw a lot of interceptions my senior year. Now let's get to the starting piece. Did I start? I did. Along with another guy who had been waiting in the wings for four years. So we were co-starters. You know, that play every other series type deal. Well, guess what? That lasted till about game five. When I got benched and the other guy was a starter. 
I'm not proud of it, but I bore false witness. Did I lie? Well, actually I did by saying I don't remember. But what I was playing was the game of, I'm gonna withhold the information to maintain this reputation that I'm a successful college quarterback. And I'm gonna withhold the information so that you can dream about, wow, so maybe he threw for like 4,000 yards his senior year and like 35 touchdown passes. Why did I bear false witness? By withholding information. Because I wanted to be a successful college quarterback. And I wasn't in Pittsburgh, I was in another town. And I played for a podunk school in Pittsburgh. So nobody would ever know. Withholding information to present a false self. Listen, we do it all the time. We do it all the time. We withhold information so that people think we're a better mother than we really are. And Facebook is the the queen of this. When everything that's posted is super mom stuff. And then you have mothers that read it and go, I'm the only person that struggles immensely in parenting my children and I'm falling apart and nobody else is. And the reality is everybody's falling apart. And we're withholding information or we're putting information out that's only about the good stuff. We do it in other ways. We withhold information so people think we're the best entrepreneur and businessman since the creation of the world. We withhold information so that people think we're the best husband and father, better than we really are. We withhold information so that we're a better coach than we really are. We withhold information so that we're a more successful church planting pastor than we really are. Speaking my language, my struggle there. And here's the problem, and this is why it's really dangerous, and this is why God dealt with it so severely with Ananias and Sapphira, is that when we withhold information to allow a perception to be out there that is different than reality, there's a gap. And that gap begins to widen between perception and reality. And that gap widens and your life becomes like a sinkhole. And you know what a sinkhole is underneath a road. It's eroding and it's eroding and it gets to a point where what happens? The road collapses. And so we've all heard it, right? The life of somebody that morally falls apart. The life of a believer that comes morally off the tracks and it goes public and that collapse was the end of something that started way back here. And it's when perception and reality creates a gap and it gets wider and wider and wider. And the reason it does is because there is something, there's something that you want so badly that you'll withhold information and create this false self that gets put forward. And in the end, when that happens, when the sinkhole collapses, then trust is eroded whether it's in a family, a marriage, whether it's in a church, whether it's in a smaller community group, trust is eroded. And and more than that, the witness to Jesus is eroded, which we're gonna get to here. And that's why God dealt with it so severely in that early church. 
Where does deceit originate? Because what I'm talking about is ultimately deceit. It's subtle deceit. Where does it originate? Who was the first person in the Bible to bear false witness? It was Satan in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, we know what God had said, right? Adam and Eve, look at all these trees. They're all yours except for this one, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All the rest is yours. But do you see what Satan did? He took God's truth and he twisted it. And he said, wait a minute, is God that stingy that he would give you all these lush trees with fruit on it and say, you can't eat of them? Now, eventually in that progression, Satan gets to an outright lie. But in that first question, did he say anything that was blatantly false? No. He was just asking a question. Oh, but it was a question with a spin. It was a question to cast doubt. It was a question that was intended to misrepresent the character of God. And you and I have fallen. In Genesis 3, along with Adam and Eve, we have fallen into misrepresenting truth, to misrepresenting ourselves, to misrepresenting others, to spinning, to exaggerating the truth. You know, I focused on the more subtle ways of bearing false witness, actually withholding information with great intention, spinning, exaggerating the truth. Uh, we can go to the more direct frontal assaults of bearing false witness, which is gossip, slander, purposely trying to malign someone's character and misrepresent them. So we've looked at why you bear false witness, how you bear false witness. Now we get to the last question. Why is faithful witness so important? Why is faithful witness so important? Ever since Satan deceived Adam and Eve and sin entered the world in Genesis 3, God has been on trial. And we see it throughout the scriptures. We see an example of it in Exodus 17, when God's people are in the desert and they have no water and they're thirsty. And so they bring their complaint as an accusation against God, as a charge against God. And they, they're about ready to stone Moses. They're about to stone Moses, which would be the, the execution of this judicial sentence. Before they die of thirst, they're going to court-martial Moses and accuse him of treason because he took him into a waterless desert. There's a a trial happening in Exodus 17. Here's what happens in the story. The Lord knows that their complaint is not ultimately against Moses. It's ultimately against him. And so he calls for a hearing in Exodus 17. And he calls for the elders of the people, and they gather around a rock. And the story goes like this. God tells Moses to strike the rock so that water comes out. Do you know what's really happening there and the way it reads in Exodus 17? It's a court hearing, and and the elders are the witnesses. And God, the rock of Israel, it says, stands on the rock and receives the blow of punishment 
as though he were guilty so that his people could drink water. Now, fast forward to Mark chapter 14, right? God's still on trial. Now it's, it's Jesus, God incarnate on trial in Mark 14. Arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, taken before the council for a hearing, before the priests, the scribes, Peter's following at a distance. Listen to this in verse 55 and following. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him. They're bearing false witness against Jesus, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days, I will build another not made with hands. Listen to this. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. They're trying to find two or three witnesses that that somehow can agree so that Jesus can be convicted because that's what it took in the Old Testament, two or three witnesses. They couldn't find it. So they went to blasphemy, which was false because Jesus was God. And then listen to this in verse 65. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Do you know what 1 Corinthians 10.4 says? It says that the rock that Moses struck in the desert was Christ. And that that event in Exodus 17 was a foreshadowing of what would happen when once again Jesus Christ bore the punishment as though he were guilty so that his people could drink, so that his people could live. Jesus Christ fully, fully obeys the Ten Commandments. Every last one of them on your behalf. And then takes the penalty for you breaking them. And what it means is that he fulfilled the ninth commandment. He fulfilled the ninth commandment, which means that he will faithfully defend you in the court of law. That he will faithfully witness on your behalf so that you can enter the throne room of the king without dying. That Jesus fulfills the ninth commandment. He is the faithful witness. And he's the one that your hope that one day you will walk before the presence of God and not receive the blow because he received it for you. Now the question becomes, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the faithful witness? See, Jesus turns to you and says, now I want you to go be a witness, a true witness, not a false witness, but a true witness. Acts chapter one, verse eight, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The word for witness there in Acts 1.8 is martyr. It's the word that means someone who dies for the faith. Right, a witness 
is an ambassador for Christ. It's someone who represents Christ at all times, everywhere, accurately. But that's what a witness is. A true witness. Even in the face of death, that's where the word martyr comes in. You know, witnessing is not so much what we do. We use that as a verb. Let's go witness to somebody. Witnessing is not so much what you do. It's what you are. It's your very life. It's your integrity. It's, it's who you are that represents King Jesus. The language we see in 2 Corinthians 5 talks about witness in the language of ambassador. Verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ God making his appeal through us that we're faithful witnesses. Paul Tripp, I love it in one of his books, he, he describes what an ambassador is and therefore what a faithful witness is. Listen to this. The job of an ambassador is to represent someone or something Everything he does and says must intentionally represent a leader who is not physically present. His calling is not limited to 40 hours a week, to certain state events, or to times of international crisis. He is always the king's representative. He stands in the place of the king or the government of his country, wherever he is, whatever he is doing. His relationships are not primarily driven by his own happiness. Let me read that again. His relationships are not primarily driven by his own happiness. He decides to go places and do things because they will help him to faithfully represent the king. Thus, the work of an ambassador, a faithful witness, is to do things incarnationally. His actions, character, and words embody the king who is not present. Why is faithful witness so important? Because the world is watching. The world has put God on trial. And listen, God can defend himself. He doesn't need you, doesn't need me, but he chooses to use you to be his witness. That your life of integrity, of bearing true witness, not only to him, but to each other, would speak to a world that's watching. I heard recently a story of a woman. She moved to town. The family moved to town. And as you do when you move to town, you're looking for relationships. You're looking for some sense of community. And so her kids, they put the kids in school, and so she was at the school dropping kids off and getting involved and starting to meet some parents, thinking that this might be where she can find some, some, some friendships. This woman was not a believer. And, and the women that she was meeting, uh, it was incredibly discouraging for her because there was, there was a level of pretense about them that nobody seemed genuine or really honest. They were backbiting. They would talk about each other in a real catty way. And then this woman met a few other parents who were completely different. 
There was no pretense about them. They talked honestly and openly about their struggles, about their parenting. They didn't care what she wore. They didn't, there was no pretense. It wasn't backbiting. They genuinely loved each other, genuinely cared for each other. They, I'll use these words, they bore true witness about each other. And this woman was drawn to that. It's a picture of what we love to hear about the church. It's not always the case, right? The church gets the label of hypocrisy. And in many ways, that's true and deceit. But here's a picture of where it, it was a community that was about bearing true witness, not withholding information, not exaggerating the truth, spinning the truth, gossiping, slandering. It was genuine. There was love. That that's what God calls his church to be. People that bear true witness for Christ, and you know how that plays out. Right? Your, your witness for Christ is how you bear true witness with each other and in your community, in your community group. If you're withholding information to keep a reputation up in your community group or your Bible study, you're not bearing true witness. And it's not a group that is going to witness for Christ. Listen to how one author writes. Think about what a local church would be like if its people were radically devoted to Christ, irrevocably committed to each other, not withholding information, not being deceitful, not spinning, exaggerating, being honest, bearing true witness, irrevocably committed to each other, and relentlessly dedicated to reaching those outside God's family with the gospel of Christ. It would be an unstoppable force, a testimony to God's unfailing grace. It would be a church against which the gates of hell could not prevail. Let's pray.